We'll turn to 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 11. I'm going to read these verses from verse 7 down through verse 15 this morning. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it's going to be very difficult for you to get what in the world is going on here. That's not because you're some uh, (laughs) novice. That's not because you um, are not a student of the Word. It's not because you don't love Jesus. Uh, It's because there's a lot that's going on in this passage that is cultural and seems somewhat private. And so it'd be like getting with a group of people and they're telling all inside jokes and you feel left out. And you're like, what? How do I understand this? You might understand the phrasing, you might understand the sentences, but you're not necessarily grasping the full full meaning. And so that's part of the barrier for us this morning. The hurdle for us in understanding this text will be to unpack some of the history of what's going on and, and the cultural emphasis and why Paul is making the decisions He's making, and yet all of this is happening in this larger context of how do you deal with false teachers. Let me put it out to you this way. Last week I reminded you, or or we talked about the fact that shepherds, under shepherds, they might get maximum two hours with you a week, and yet the average family and home is spending countless of hours every single day, if not every single week, listening to other voices. Uh, You know this as parents. If you have children, you send them off doesn't matter where you send them. Send them to some other school. Send them to play with sports teams, music practice, hang out with friends. And, and you realize they have lots more time with other people than they necessarily do with you. Let me just tell you, that's the way of life. Um, you, you send your spouse off. They go to one workplace. You go to another. They're going to spend 40-plus hours with people that are not you. And, and so there's influence. You turn the TV on. There's influence. Radio, there's influence. So what do you do in a situation then? where you know some of what they're around, some of what they're soaking in, uh, is, is contrary to your ideals, your morals, your, your ethos, uh, certainly to right theology. How do you work through that? How do you disciple through that? God never designed for us all to live in the greenhouse. You can think of this as greenhouse. He put us here to go out, right? And so we're supposed to be raising our kids to send them out. We're supposed to be doing life to go out. And so Israel was come and see. Churches go and tell. And so, how do we deal with this? And, and that's exactly what Paul's facing because he knows the Corinthian church is soaking in the poison of false teachers. He doesn't even have the time that we have. He's writing letters back and forth and he's getting weird questions and bad questions. Contrary to popular belief, there are bad questions. He's getting bad questions he's having to answer. We're not dealing with the real issues. And so, he's having to combat this. And so, I would say this what method should you follow? What practice should you abide by? What should be your methodology of spiritual ministry when you know you have limited time and the people you're trying to deal with, work with, lovingly shepherd, uh, disciple, counsel, are going to have lots more time with the folks that you're going to disagree with? How do you do it? What do you do? How do you approach ministry? And that's, that's actually what he's going to teach us this morning, but in a very cultural context. So let's at least... Let's read through the text and familiarize ourselves with what's going on here. 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing here, verse 7. We're going to read from verse 7 down through verse 15. And he's picking up this cultural issue of money and support that we'll talk about here in just a moment. He says this, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. 
So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the reasons of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what am I doing and what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, there's this whole cultural conflict then that's happening in Corinth. We're just reading the verses. You know, it has something to do with monetary support. Paul not receiving money from the Corinthians. Um, but clearly Paul's not opposed to receiving money from churches because he receives money from the Macedonian churches while he's in Corinth. Somehow this has become a basis for them to say that Paul is in sin, Paul is stealing from other churches, and Paul doesn't love us. Uh, somehow they're using this to say Paul doesn't have a right to be here or to exert influence here. And it's all wrapped up in this concept of him refusing to be paid by the Corinthians but he is willing to be paid by other churches. So what in the world is going on? And frankly, to put it to a fine point, what in the world does that have to do with us today? Is this so cultural that there's very little application for us? And can we really understand what's happening? And some of you already are remembering uh, from 1 Corinthians, which is the first time he deals with this issue. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Maybe I can explain the situation to you uh, from my childhood. When I was growing up at Edmondson Heights Elementary School, uh, we always loved at recess, we'd play dodgeball, kickball, baseball, something like that. And there was one little boy in our grade that was just frankly light years athletically ahead of any of the rest of us. And, and this young man, he ultimately actually got a four-year full scholarship to a local private Catholic school, uh, Keenan High School, which was the athletic powerhouse. He was a two- two or three sport athlete would vacillate between baseball soccer and football uh they tried to get him to play basketball he's just a good enough athlete he would do that ran some track he ended up with a four-year scholarship to the university of maryland uh and then got drafted both by some baseball team as well as some football team he was so even in elementary school this kid was light years ahead of everyone else so what do we always want you always want him on your team right and if he was on your team you were guaranteed win it just frankly wasn't fair uh, if he pitched, nobody could hit him. Uh, if he batted, it was always a home run. Uh, if he played kickball, he just launched this thing. It just This kid was sick. The genetics were just amazing. And he was actually one of four brothers, and they were all really good. And so it just got old because we tried to pick team captains. Uh, if he was a team captain, his team always won. If you got to pick first, he got picked. He always won. So he was, he was so good, he, we just made him all-time quarterback, all-time uh, pitcher. Like, that's what we'd make him. And we'd make him tone down his pitches so that he was actually hittable. And, and we understood when we played football, uh, he was quarterback, you were not allowed to tackle him uh, because we didn't want him to get hurt. He just was that good. But every once in a while, there was a kid or a couple boys that they got sick of losing and they wanted him on their team. And one was the great Halloween gate of my sixth grade year uh, where these boys went and after they got all their candy from Halloween, they bribed him to be on their team. And it was mass chaos. Uh, there was fights over this, fist fights, because everybody wanted him on their team. And once they had him on their team, they were guaranteed victory. This is a way to understand Corinth. 
Corinth wanted the best on their team. You might remember that from 1 Corinthians, where they're having this identity crisis, and they said some are of Paul, some are of Peter, some are even of, G- of Apollos, some are of Jesus. They wanted to align themselves with a respectable person. So the way it happened in Corinthian culture was through what we call patronage. And they would become a patron, very wealthy people in Corinth. And there weren't a lot of wealthy people in the church at Corinth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, there's not many of you strong, wise, or noble. But we know there, was some, there were a few very wealthy people in the church. The very wealthy people in the church would follow Corinthian culture. And Corinthian culture was they prized orators or guys who would practice rhetoric or wise men or, or teachers. And these guys would typically travel around the regions and speak for a while, receive some monetary support and move on. But in Corinthian culture and in the region of Achaia, they would raise up patrons. Patron would be a really wealthy person. They don't have movies, right? They don't have the next Marvel movie coming out. They're not, they don't have the next TV show. They're not listening to radio. This is their entertainment. And they don't want to lose their entertainment. They don't want to lose the influence of these guys. So a wealthy patron would come along and say, hey, don't work anymore. I'll pay you. And I'll pay you to stay right here in Corinth or in this region of Achaia. I'll pay you to stay here. And you're kind of like my guy. I'm on your team. And, and so kind of like celebrity rubs off. They're, they become like groupie for this guy, this orator. And so they said, you're my guy, and, and, and I pay you, and everybody knows I'm your main patron. Uh, you might even get a few wealthy people together. They're all paying this guy. And so they become the groupies. He eats at their house. He stays at their place. He's their dude. And everybody then respects them because they respect that guy. A little bit of celebrity rub off here. This is how close I get, and I'm this guy. Now, the problem is these guys get saved, these wealthy people get saved, and they want to do the same thing in the church that they did in their culture. And so when Paul came to Corinth, they wanted to be Paul's patron. They didn't want Paul going somewhere else. They weren't interested in Paul traveling back to Jerusalem. They didn't want Paul going back to Macedonia. They certainly didn't want him to travel to any of these other churches. They definitely would have been opposed to him going to Rome. They wanted to keep Paul right here in Corinth or in Achaia in this region, and they want to become his patron. They want to pay him. Now, Paul knows what all of us immediately understand about that concept. Now, you might see the benefits of that. Well, that means that Paul wouldn't have to work anymore as a tent maker. That seems to be a Benny. Uh, Paul would only be able to focus on the study and proclamation of the world. That seems like a Benny. That, that's a good thing. But there's also a couple of problems with it. Right off the bat, when you were the patron of someone, you would never expect that person to say something to make you look bad. Right? I mean, that'd be hard to do. If this guy's paying your bills, it'd be really hard to, to suddenly disagree with him publicly. You, you're in his pocket. And we all understand that. And, and so even, even if Paul would to have accepted the patronage, so let's say Paul, Paul's a man of integrity, he's an apostle, say Paul accepted the patronage, say there's this really wealthy group of Corinthians, and they say, we're your patrons, Paul, stop pricking your fingers, sewing up tents together, stop smelling nasty, because they, they would also, they were tanners, they'd make the leather, and then they'd make the tents out of them, we don't, you, you smell gross, you work with your hands, it's hard for you to be respectable, We'll pay you. And Paul's a man of integrity. And Paul, say Paul took the money. He's like, okay. But Paul's a man of integrity. 
So he still preaches what he's wanting to preach. He still preaches that it's wrong when they come to communion or the Lord's table, that the rich people all sit, they come early, they bring all their own stuff, they eat and drink to the point of drunkenness and gluttony, and then the poor Corinthians don't even have enough. Paul's still going to confront it. Paul's still going to confront them over taking one another to court to get their money because they're so bent on money getting, they didn't care about it defaming the name of Christ. Paul's a man of integrity. He's still going to preach it. The problem is, though, everybody's going to question it all the time. They're always going to doubt it. I heard recently of a church situation where an incredibly wealthy and influential and powerful person in the church purchased a new car for the wife of the pastor. Now, don't think evil. Like, like, I think any discerning person in this room immediately questions, well, would the pastor ever stick up to this guy then? I mean, that's a pretty hard call. I don't know what kind of car it is. Let's just pick one. Wife rolling around in a brand new Beamer, three series, kind of hard to confront the guy. We all would question it. Even if, even if the reality was, of course the pastor would confront him, and of course the pastor would deal honestly. Paul knows if I become a patron, even if I have integrity, integrity will be questioned, right? It's just not going to work. So when Paul goes to Corinth, he makes a decision. I'm going to this region. This is the way this culture thinks. I'm not going to do it. I will go, and I will not take one dime from them to preserve the integrity of the gospel, to showcase the way things should be supposed to be. No one could question it. That's what I'm going to do. And actually, if you keep your finger here in 2 Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's the first time Paul raises this issue. And he says this to them, and he tells them that this is what he's going to do. And so um, we go back up to verse 8 in chapter 9. This is all along the issue of taking money and exercising your rights. Paul says this, do I say these things on human authority? And what he's saying is that does he not have the right to be married and have the right to have children and have the right for them to pay him? Well, he does. Does not law, the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope. And the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. First reason Paul refused to receive money from the Corinthians is because of their cultural understanding of patronage. He knew it would cause the call the gospel into question. But Paul's having to teach him this because Paul understood once the church is established, once the church is established, you're going to have uh, elders here, you're going to have under shepherds there. He teaches this in First Timothy chapter four. He teaches it here. Then you should support those guys as much as you can, and particularly if they give themselves to the prayer and study the word, support them do that so that they can give themselves to that and paul understood as the church is going to move forward that was going to need to take place but paul also understood certainly at the inception of this certainly with the corinthian culture if he did this in this way it would call the gospel into question and so he refuses to make exercise of his rights that's the situation in a nutshell you fast forward and you have these false teachers and the false teachers had risen up and the false teachers got into the pockets of the wealthy people. They became uh, patronage in the church. And so it wasn't necessarily the church supporting these guys, but the false teachers 
are in the pocket of the rich people. And so one of the things they're doing then is they're saying, look at Paul. Um, If Paul really cared about you, he'd have been willing to stay right here. If Paul loved you, he would stay right here. Uh, When I was candidating um, a decade ago, um, I had a gentleman ask me, and, and I don't think he was, I don't think it was a wrong question per se, but he asked me, what commitment would I make to being here? And, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, as long as the Lord has me here, I'll be here. And that wasn't enough for this guy. Um, privately, he wanted some, I don't know, time frame promise. Um, days, months, years, what have you. And I'm, I'm like, I, look, as much as, as long as the Lord has me here, I'm going to be here. I, I'm not looking to go anywhere. As much as long as the Lord has me here, this is where I'm going to be. That was not enough. And and as the conversation went forward, I, I think whether it was his, uh, his background or experiences or hurt, prior hurts, I don't know. But it was very clear he was attaching affection and love to it. If I loved this flock, then I could easily have said, I'll be here till Jesus calls me home. Or if he calls us all home in the rapture. And anything less than that was going to call into question my love and affection. Sometimes we think that way. Sometimes we're prone to believe that about other people. If they really love us, then they'll be there. And I think we think that way because lots of relationships are like that. Certainly marriage relationship is like that. Out of love, you commit, you covenant, you're going to be there. Um, Certainly friendships, I think, should be that way. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to invest. And um, God's called me to be a friend. And a brother is born for adversity. I'm your spiritual brother or... Uh, you're my spiritual sister, and so as much as lies within us, we're going to be there for one another and, and care for one another. And that's part of the way the Corinthians were thinking about this. But they were warping it, and you can take it to an extreme. And you can take it to an extreme, and uh, sometimes even you'll see this when someone passes away. Family members can be, and it's part of the stages of grief, but they can be angry with them. Why did you leave me? Right? Why have you abandoned me now through death? And that could be part of the normal grieving process as, as we have to work through that. But it's because we associate this, if you'll love me, you'll be there. So the Corinthians were susceptible to this. They looked at Paul, and they were like, Paul won't take money from us. He won't let us be his patron. And he wants to travel all over the place. Doesn't he know we love him and we want him here? And the false teachers are coming right into that void, and they're saying, you're right. We love you so much, we'll never leave you. We're not going anywhere. But you're right, Paul doesn't. And on top of that, while Paul is in Corinth, stitching together tents, telling the Corinthians, no, I will not take your money, the Macedonians, who we know don't have anything, send him an offering, and he takes their offering. Well, that really ticks off the Corinthians. And they're like, no, if you're here, you ought to take our money, not the poor people's money that we don't even respect. And so they say he's robbing. He's stealing from them. And then on top of that, you have the false teacher saying, you know what that is? That's nothing more than sin. That's sin. He's arrogant. He's self-sufficient. He's independent. He doesn't love you. He's in sin. That's what's going on here. Do you, that's the cultural context of what is happening. And so how does Paul deal with it? And this is, I think, what we can learn from this. Ministry for an audience of one gives clarity in conflict. What do we mean by this? Well, Paul was not on mission to please the Corinthians. 
He wasn't on a mission to please the Macedonians, for that matter. He wasn't on a mission to please the church in Jerusalem. Paul did not preach and teach and disciple. Paul did not lead. Paul did not approach his apostolic calling out of a sense to please anybody but King Jesus. He did ministry with a focus on an audience of one. You can make, even boil it down this way. Uh, Jesus put it this, this way. It, Jesus was on mission for an audience of one. He says, not my will, but your will be done. He says he didn't come to do the will of anyone, but the will of the Father who sent him. And when Jesus teaches us to pray, how does he teach us to pray? That his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. To minister for an audience of one is to understand that you are not put on this earth to be a friend, spouse, parent, husband, wife, neighbor, church member, community member, single. You're not put here to please anybody but God. And so whatever ministry he's called you into, whatever ministry location and opportunity he has given you, whether it is singing, whether it is giving, whether it's receiving offerings, whether it's cutting grass, whether it's taking care of children in the nursery, whether it's teaching children, whether it's helping people move, whether it's providing for needs, whether it's writing notes of encouragement, whether it's coming into someone else's life and praying for them, you are to be on mission for one, an audience of one. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul has demonstrated a number of times, even through the book of Corinthians, that he understands that while others may judge him, the true judge is God. Others may evaluate his ministry, the true evaluator is God. Others can even rightly or wrongly judge, or rightly or wrongly give evaluation, rightly or wrongly give feedback to the ministry that God has called us into doing. The ultimate judge, the ultimate arbiter, determiner, of whether or not we're doing this ministry as we should, is God the Father. Now, that's both freeing and astoundingly frightening. Because in many ways, it's far easier to please others than the audience of one. But this is the way Paul functioned. I, I think to remind you, and this is one of the joys of, of working through books together, uh, I know lots of you were here, <laughs> have been here to, to remember this. You might remember when they were judging Paul, and he says, my conscience is clear, but I don't trust my conscience, chapter 4. And, and so he says, but God will judge me. That's not like the guy that goes out arrogantly and puts a no fear sticker on the back of his pickup truck, uh, or the lady who arrogantly goes out and gets a tattoo, God alone can judge me. I can't tell you how many times I've seen those misspelled. Those are, that's just hilarious. But, um, you know, God and the grammar police, I don't know. So, um, it, but it's, it's like this, ah, oh, me alone. That's not Paul's attitude. Because Paul says, actually, it could be really wrong here, and God nail me. But God is the one that matters. And what God is judging is my faithfulness. And so all along the way, Paul's been trying to teach the Corinthians, if not proactively, didactically, by saying this is how you do it. He's been demonstrating this is how you do it. And so this morning, I just want to be, start asking you, who do you do ministry for? Is it really for an audience of one? And what does that play out like, and how does that look? And, and so what we can actually see is, is three reactions to this decision from Paul uh, that he's in sin and that he robbed and he doesn't love us. And then a, a fourth Benny, a fourth bonus point 
for what happens when you do ministry for an audience of one. So let's just work through these practically, and, and I pray and I hope that they'll help you in whatever ministry context you are in. First one is in a sense of holiness. Minister, when you minister for an audience of one, minister in holiness. You can think of it as righteousness. He says it this way, verse 7, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Leadership studies have shown us time after time that all the competency in the world to do a job is worthless if the one doing it doesn't have character. Uh, This merely reflects what we see in the Bible, right? The qualifications to have any kind of leadership role or position in the life of the church hinges on character. What is their character? And, And it's not that they're super saints, to be frank with you. When you read 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, it's not. It's it's actually that they are normative, maturing believers. That's, That's what the qualifications are. And there's one gift qualification for elders. So we understand God's call even in the life of the church's character, but the secular world understands this. You get this even in your workplace. I think one example of this is the Wounded Warrior Project. It's a fantastic, or was for years, a fantastic organization founded by a Marine. He came back wounded, um, realized there was very little at the time transition between uh, coming off the battlefield wounded as an American soldier and transitioning back into regular life. It was very difficult. There was a gap there. And so he wanted to come into the gap, so he started off by giving backpacks, prepping backpacks, uh, would give backpacks to wounded soldiers coming back. Backpack would have everything in there from a, like a deck of cards, uh, resource notes to be able to connect with other organizations, help with PTSD and some other, other issues you might be having, change of clothes. When he came off the battlefield, he's laying in the hospital, he, he literally had no clothes. Like he's got his, his hospital gown, and those are known for their comfort and their, and their, and their modesty, right? Um, and, and you've got to wear about three of those puppies to get, to get anywhere, right? Take a walk. Uh, let's put a couple gowns on. So he's like clothes in there and resources and a Bible. And all, it just started that way. And it, it, people got on board with it because our culture has changed, right? So we're no longer the culture that when guys came back from Vietnam, like my dad came back from serving in Japan in the Army, and he couldn't get a job anywhere. They were hated. Well, praise God. Uh, most of our culture has shifted. We want to help these people. They come off the field. Well, over time, people are getting behind it. It's becoming a big moneymaker. And there's an attorney that's working for the organization Wounded Warrior Project. He never served in the military, but this dude was an amazing fundraiser. And he kind of wheels it his way into the board, and, and he got the board to fire the original founder as the chairman. And he, this guy became the, the founder. And so the mission became raise money. So the Wounded Warrior Project just, frankly, just became one of the biggest charitable organizations and fastest fundraisers that this nation has ever seen. Uh, in, in one year, they raised over $800 million. You can't buy enough backpacks for $800 million. So you're going to spend the money on something. So in one year, they spent $26 million, listen to me now, on staff retreats. Twenty. Six million. They went to five-star resorts, everything included, massage, and they're in Vail, Colorado, and they went to Jackson Hole, and they went to Vegas because they needed a staff retreat for a staff of 70. Stayed in Vegas for like two weeks, full rental cars. At one big event, staff, staff event, the CEO, um, he repelled. They had music going and indoor fireworks. It was like a massive rock concert. And he repelled from the top of the ceiling down. Never served a day in the military. 
but he's dressing like fatigues to kind of look like, I don't know, he's like Navy SEAL or Green Beret dude and all this. This thing went off the rails because the guy had no character. All the competency in the world, no character. Exposés were done. I think 2020 got after him. CBS, ABC, New York Times nailed him. They end up firing this guy and his right-hand crony, rehiring the original founder, and they're trying to get back on track, and they've become now an organization. Do your own research, because I don't want you, if you're like excited about when to work, and I'm excited about the idea, the organization's now trying to fix it because this is what they've learned. All the competency in the world doesn't matter if you don't have any character. Paul understands this. How is it that false teachers break down our barriers? Do you remember this from last week? What do they do? They do it by attacking the people we should trust. And so they're accusing Paul of sinfulness. They're saying you have no character. We can't, if we can't trust you as a person, how do we ever trust what's coming out of your mouth? They're judging Paul by standards of what they think is sin and what isn't. They're taking their culture and their feelings about patronage, they're taking their perspective, and they're running Paul through that grid. And when Paul is run through the grid of their culture, their perspective, their hurt feelings, their idea of what you should be doing, what comes out the bottom doesn't match, and so they judge Paul to be a sinner. Listen now, when you do ministry, hear me now, there will always be people when you do ministry correctly who accuse you of doing it wrongly. Always. And when you go to them and you say, can we open the Bible together and you show me then what I've done in sin, they don't have a verse to back it up. It has everything to do with their idea of what culture and feeling and impression of what you should be doing. But when you minister for an audience of one, you don't base what you do, how you do it, and when you do it upon pleasing other people. You ask yourself, is this holy and righteous or not? And what does the Bible say about it? And whatever God says is holy and righteous, that's what I'm going to go with. And that's what I'm going to be committed to doing. False teachers are driven by an any means necessary kind of mentality. False teachers will use everything from manipulation, coercion, threats, and lies to compel people to follow them. You know, it's fascinating because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that false teachers, it's by their fruits we will know them. Well, what fruits? This is why it's so critical for us to understand the concept of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Because you might remember when he's questioning these guys at the judgment seat, they say, have we not cast out demons in your name? And have we not preached in your name? And have we not done good things? In other words, all those things that most people normally think is fruit. People and approval, and crowds, and acceptance. They have that. Clearly not what Jesus is talking about is fruitfulness. And so how do we actually discern it? How do we know it? Well, Paul says, you might look at these guys and think you see strength and intelligence and attractiveness even. But Paul keeps saying, when I come, I'm going to find out the power of these guys. And so we start thinking, well, Jesus is talking about fruitfulness. Paul's talking about seeing the power of these guys. How do we understand this? He knows this, Paul knows this, if you look long enough and hard enough, what you won't see is holiness and righteousness. The way they do ministry will reveal them. And so Paul says here, verse 7, he says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so you might be exalted? It's a beautiful expression in the language. This might sound really familiar to you. I went lower 
that you might go higher. I went lower. I didn't have as much money. I worked really hard. I was, I was looked down upon you and judged by you. I went lower so you could go higher spiritually. It's a play off of what he reminded them of in chapter 8, verse 9 about Jesus. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. When Paul considered, I'm going into Achaia, I'm going to Corinth, and they have this patronage system, so I know, uh, and he's showing up bruised, literally physically bruised, he just got beat up. I'm going somewhere, I don't have a lot. There's some really wealthy people there. By God's grace, he could save them and make this easy. But Paul says, no, it's going to hurt the gospel, and that's not how Jesus ministered, so that's not how I'm going to minister. I'm going to pattern what I do off of what Jesus does. Leaders who lead with holiness, listen now, they'll own their sin and they'll repent. You're not going to find someone perfect in ministry, not in the home, not in the workplace, not in the church, not in your community. But when they've sinned, they're going to own it, they're going to repent from it. The leader who has to always insist that they're right is a problem. False teachers can't humble themselves because they don't have the presence of the Spirit in them to humble them. Leaders who lead with holiness will sacrifice their rights, their comforts, and their goods in order to meet other people's needs spiritually. Paul recognized that the pattern of ministry is to go lower so that God might elevate others higher spiritually. John the Baptist had the same mindset. He said, may I decrease that Jesus may increase. And so we're thinking of it this way. Hear me now. You should think of ministry for an audience of one this way. I want to go as low as possible so Jesus can be made as high as possible in their life. And I'm going to trust God for his approval later. I'm going to work for what he approves of, not what everyone else wants or thinks or demands of me. Leaders who lead with holiness are ruled by God's righteousness and not the culture or pressure of others. Leaders who lead with holiness recognize that the character of a changed and changing life in them demonstrates the power of the gospel they're calling others to believe. Leaders are not to be so far ahead of you spiritually that you're never aware of their own failings and weaknesses and broke areas of their life. Rather, out of their failings, weaknesses, and broke areas, you have an opportunity to see Jesus being made strong. You might be thinking of your own heart in this moment. And you might be realizing that when you do ministry endeavors, no matter its location, no matter its context, the last thing you want to do is admit to somebody else you've sinned. Or to own the fact you don't have all the best ideas. Or to own the fact that you're weak in an area. You didn't handle this right. And I just want to encourage you then, this, this truth. In that moment, what God has graciously and kindly shown you is you don't minister for an audience of one. You want their approval, their acceptance, to satisfy them, not King Jesus. And so it moves on from there, though. Paul, it's not just, it's not just this idea when he ministers with an audience of one, for an audience of one, that it's by righteousness, but, but it's an issue of mission. Uh, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, 
or excuse me, that's, that's way back verse 2. That's not helpful. Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He's using their language. This is sarcasm. Paul doesn't actually think he robbed them. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions in Achaia. And so this is where we go back to that culture and why I took so much time at the start of the sermon to help you understand it. So why would Paul then, while he's in Corinth, if he's refusing money from the Corinthians, why would he take money from the Macedonians? And so the Corinthians interpreted that through their filter of false teachers and said that's robbery. And the, way, the reason they say that is they're saying while you're here, we should pay you. If you were there, they should pay you. But it's stealing to take money from them there while you're here. That's the way they were thinking. So why would Paul do this? Can I just encourage you, when you have an audience of one, you minister with other people who are on mission with you. Paul's mission has always been the same. Paul's mission was to make Jesus clear. <laughs> that was his mission. He's an apostle, and there's a lot of specifics, right? So as an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is called to go to unreached people. Um, and every once in a while you find a believer there because of what happened at the day of Pentecost. So gather any believers that are there, evangelize the lost, establish a church, and move on. That was his mission. I want to minister like Jesus as I gather believers, get, evangelize the lost, establish a church, and move on to another area. He's always going to be a traveling minister. That's what he's called to do as an apostle. And so you see Paul do this time after time after time after time. He's not on mission for fame. He's not on mission for fortune. And you see him defend what his mission is to Festus and Agrippa in Acts. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also who hear, all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He's on mission that other people would know Jesus Christ. Listen, one guy told me years ago, if you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it every time. Paul is on mission, and he's clear on what his mission is. His mission is that the foreign Gentile lands would hear of Jesus, be saved, establish churches, and move on. Corinthian patronage doesn't permit that. Corinthian patronage would keep him right there. Corinthian patronage would call into question the integrity of the gospel. If we're paying him, how can we trust what Paul is saying this way? If Paul is taking their money, there would be an expectation for him to stay right there in Corinth and not go anywhere else. But Paul, that's contrary to the mission that Paul's on. So why can Paul take the Macedonians' money but not the Corinthians. Because the Macedonians are giving him the money while he's in Corinth. Why are these poor people sending money to Paul in rich Corinth? Because they're on board with the mission. They're like, yes, stay in Corinth and preach the gospel. Meanwhile, the Corinthians are like, how dare you stay in Macedonia? Come back here. The Macedonians bought in to the mission that God had put Paul on in his apostolic calling they're not trying to lure him back these are poor saints sacrificing to help paul push forward in what god had called him to do listen you have a mission whether you know it or not you're actually on mission whether you realize it or not every one of you in this room what about your parenting what should be your mission in parenting your mission in parenting should be to image jesus 
to raise up other image bearers of Jesus and kick them out of your home to go image Jesus. That's your mission. That's it. Image Jesus to raise up image bearers of Jesus to kick them out to go image Jesus. That's hard. That's hard. I don't like, you know, uh, Dennis and Barbara Rainey, they called it releasing the arrow. Like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior or children in my quiver, so I'm going to release them. I don't want to release mine either. I don't just love them. I like them. I want them to keep around. Hang around. How can I structure life so you're right here in Irmo? Now, I don't know. Jesus might do a kind work and they stay right here. Praise the Lord. But that's not my mission. My mission is image Jesus, raise up image bearers of Jesus, and kick them out to go image Jesus. That's my job. That's my mission. And so when that's my mission, get this now, anything and everything contrary to that mission can't come in my home. Don't mess up Jesus' mission through me for my kids. That's, that's got to be my perspective, right? Don't mess it up. So I send them out. Uh, every one of my kids goes out to school every day. They come home from school. Dinner conversation is always the same. It's predictable. We are so boring. What happened at school today? What did you hear at school today? What were you taught in school today? And then we filter through the Bible. We have discipleship conversations. Now, that's one of the ways we're trying to do Not everybody does mission that way. I don't have a problem with that. Do mission how it works for you. But the mission is to do that. What you should be wondering is, is Steve and Beth Ann staying on mission? Listen, listen now. This is what Paul thought. I'm on mission to preach the gospel, to, to gather believers, save the lost, establish churches, and move on. So I want to get other people around me that buy into that mission. The Macedonians did, the Corinthians didn't. When you're on mission, you want to surround yourself with other people that help keep you on mission. You want to be burdened to help other people stay on their mission that God has for them. You want them in your life. You want them speaking truth to you. Do you know why? Because every one of us in this room could be the next Wounded Warrior Project. It's called Mission Drift. And one of the things we know, we know about people, is there's a tendency to drift from mission. Did Mark drift from mission? I think so. And what did Paul say? Send him back and don't bring him back. He drifted from mission, not interested. When Peter drifts from mission, what does Paul do? confronts him right in front of everybody paul knew personally how easy it is to drift from mission for this audience of one you should be on mission in your home in your marriage what's the mission in your marriage oh it's the same as dating i'm just delighting in knowing them and spending time with them and putt putt and bowling and hanging out and going to the movies and having nice dinners and flowers and special presents and i hate to tell you this you know what your mission is in marriage help each other be like jesus marriage is sanctifying and it ain't easy it's hard but you're on mission so we're gonna stay on mission to be like what's your mission in your neighborhood oh man god has called me to love him and love my neighbor as myself I need to get to know these people. I need to be into their life. I need to be invested in them, build relationships with them so that I can show them Jesus. 
because God called Israel to say, come and see. God's put me as a Christian to go and show and tell. That's what I want to do. What's my mission in my workplace? <laughs> Punch the clock and go home, Steve. Come on now. God has put you on mission to demonstrate exactly, listen to this, what would it look like if Jesus had your job? That's mission. There's mission. And so suddenly you realize when we're all prone to mission drift, and this mission is, these missions are really hard, you've got to know them because if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And the nice thing about aiming at nothing and hitting it every time is you feel like you're an Olympic-level archer. Is you think you've got it together. But if you actually don't know what you're shooting at, if you can't quantify what is your mission, there is serious question whether you're actually getting about what Jesus wants you to be doing. But when you're doing ministry for an audience of one, you suddenly start asking, what exactly is this that I'm called to do? How am I going to get there? And how do I find other people around me? Part of the purpose of the community of the church is to help you know and stay on mission. That's what it is. And guess what? Mission changes different seasons of life, doesn't it? Like it just shifts all the time, whether you're married or single, whether you've got kids in your home or not, whether you're working, whether you're retired. Whether it does, it's just shifting all the time. So we need constant input there. So what in your life, who in your life helps you to stay on mission? What is your mission in ministry as a single or married or as parents, as neighbors, or as employees, can you identify your mission and what obstacles exist to you getting it done? Do you speak into the life of another about where God has them and if they're doing what God has for them? People who minister for an audience of one are on mission. False teachers are looking for a following for them. That's why they're territorial about it. That's why they say Paul shouldn't even be claiming Achaia. But Paul is willing to, He's willing to give up a lot of himself, but he's not willing to give up Corinth and Achaia because Paul knew his mission was to gather believers, evangelize the lost in Corinth, and then train them over 18 months to go out in the whole region and see the gospel promoted. He expects the Corinthians, listen now, he expects the Corinthians to be on mission. Paul expected his mission that God gave him to rub off on the Corinthians and them to go on mission. Darren and I have failed if we're the only two in mission in church. failed abysmally like pack it up and go home but paul had great hope and he's called us to be to be laser focused on mission but to call each and every one of you to stay on mission the mission god has for you to be mentioned that we got to move on third one is authority uh, you minister with the authority of the word you see it in verse 11 why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. When you do ministry with people in conflict, love frequently becomes a topic of conversation, or at least a question. Now, now all things being equal, when you're doing ministry with, in, a, in a healthy situation, uh, you should try to find ways that that person feels that you love them doesn't just know but they feel that you love them if it's a healthy situation as much as lies within you listen if your wife likes chocolate get her some chocolate if your kid 
uh, likes breakfast dates, take them on a breakfast date. If, if, your, if your buddy likes to just shoot the breeze over coffee and, and talk about everything from the NASCAR race to what they read in their devotions, then, then brush up on NASCAR a little bit, right? Find ways in a, in a healthy situation to, to communicate loving, affection, tenderness, and relational growth in a way that they're going to understand, know, and receive it, right? Like, the problem comes in when you have a conflict situation relationally. And that's what Paul's dealing with. And when you have conflict, one of the things people are going to accuse you of is you don't love me. So you're trying to do ministry with them. Uh, maybe one of the clearest illustrations is a parent of a small child. Um, right? Like The first time you discipline that child and they look at you like, what wicked person have you become in my life? How dare you smack my hand? Um, they doubt your love right? Uh, it's, it's like dealing with a friend who's a believer and you first time maybe they've ever been confronted and you go to confront them and they look at you like, How, you don't love me anymore. And that's a hard moment. And in that moment, here's the question, what will you be ruled by? What will you and I be ruled by? What they think is loving or what the word says is loving? And when you minister for an audience of one, you're going to be ruled by what the word says, not what they want not what they demand, not what they question. And I just want you to know that is an incredibly terrifying and difficult moment. I told you so many stories about my dad. But when I got really, really, really wounded one time, my dad confronted me, and he basically said, what does God want you to do? I think God wants me to be a pastor. After I was so ill-treated, early 20s, I said, I don't think I want to be a pastor. My dad said, well, look, Steve, you got, you got, here's your two options. Start going to Bible college. If you do that, you can stay here. If not, go find yourself an apartment and go move on with your life. But what you cannot do here is stay in our home and float. Now, some of you are like, I'm not sure that was loving. I look back with intense gratitude 20-some years later. That was love. That was biblical love, not cultural love. That's exactly what I need to hear. I'm not saying every kid in every moment needs to hear that. So like, well, Steve said this, so I'm going to do But in that moment, my dad operated to please God as a father instead of whatever Steve wanted to hear from a father. That's exactly what I need to hear. Painful, difficult conversation, lots of tears in that moment. I could tell my dad was scared to say that to me. When you do ministry for an audience of one, you're not driven by how this person will necessarily perceive is this love. You're driven by what does God call you to do that is loving. And so frequently, when it's conflict in that moment, it's going to be some confrontational conversation. It's going to be opening the Bible, bringing it to bear in uncomfortable ways. It's going to be humbly owning your own sin. It's going to be owning your own failures as you're trying to speak into their life, so you're making sure you're not judging them, and you're realizing you could easily sin in the same way, Galatians chapter 6, and you're, you're just caring for their soul, and you're saying hard things, and we have to do it in our marriages and our friendships and our church community and our neighborhoods and our workplaces but we've got to be ruled by what the word says is loving and not by what culture or others say is loving and i want you to hear this truth the more you make pleasing others your goal the less effective ministry will ever be in your life there have been times when I've had to say some hard things to very dear friends. And, and just to be clear, I'm thinking of folks outside of the church, not in the church context at all. But I've had some very hard things, very dear friends, and I've known they're hard enough that I might lose that friendship. Now I won't say it. 
because I like their friendship. And I, and, I, and I remember one time in particular, I told the Lord, I'm just, I, like when I pray, it's just raw. It's conversation. And um, I remember saying, Jesus, I don't have lots of friends. I don't know if I can do life without that friendship. Just be honest with you. I just don't know that I can do it. I need that. And, and this is the way I think the Holy Spirit actually works. I mean, my immediate heart went to Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus' three closest friends sleeping instead of praying for him. And then another guy he spent three years with betraying him with a kiss. And another guy said, man, I'm going to take up the sword and defend you, now cursing to deny him. And the first thing I began to realize was Jesus knew exactly, exactly the fear and turmoil in my heart in that moment. And the question becomes, do I want effective ministry? So what is effective ministry? You know what it is? Faithful ministry. That's what Paul said. We would be judged to be faithful. So whether it's as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor in my community, as a church member, as a friend to others, if I want faithful ministry, the more faithful ministry I want, the more I need to die to wanting to make other people happy. I need to operate for ministry, for an audience of one. And the crux of the moment, this is the way my, my brain, my puny brain works, right? The crux of the moment, I remember even driving for this meeting with this person. And I just put on this base level for my heart. I'm just being raw with you. Would I rather hear at the end of this meeting you're a really good friend, thank you. Or die in a car wreck on the way home and hear God say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Which one do I want? And I prayed that for hours on a car ride. Which one? Which one? Which one? Which one? Walked up the sidewalk. Which one? Which one? Which one? Jesus, I need you to show up. The more you make pleasing others your goal, the less effective ministry will ever be in your life. Now there's one last Benny. It's a benefit. It's a good thing. Verses 12 through 15. Paul says, I'm, what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So there's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond 
to their deeds. Paul knows that they are inundated. inundated. They are soaking in the poison. The false teachers are right there. His letter's going to get read once, and then the false teachers are going to be able to speak right up in that moment. Uh, they're going to be able to visit them in their homes. Paul's not even there. They're going to be able to spend hours upon hours upon hours with them, just spewing their falsehood, their lies, their selfishness to them. I, I don't know about you, have you ever ministered to someone, may, and I know some of you have experienced this with children and with spouses and with other loved ones and friends and neighbors, where you have tried to speak truth, tried to speak truth, tried to speak truth, and nevertheless you have seen their hearts swayed by the enemy, swayed by angels, people masquerading as angels of light, but really they're false teachers, swayed and drawn away, and they sever, and you look at them and you're like, wow, what in the world do I do? What is Paul supposed to do? Well, he's writing a letter to these people that he views as his own spiritual children, but they're being swayed. And Paul says, I'm going to keep the course of ministry for an audience of one because I know this. Eventually, I will undercut who they really are. It will expose them. Why does he say that? Because false teachers can't stay the course. False teachers will eventually have to, have to shift They'll have to be a hypocrite. Their hypocrisy will be revealed. They will have to be deceptive to continue to win you to their side. They're going to have to not be willing to deal with you in truth. They're going to have to say things that you want to hear that isn't the truth just to keep a, a, a crowd together. And you can't please everybody all the time. And Paul knew eventually you'll fall out of sorts with them. It will be revealed. Paul knew all he could do was focus on ministry for an audience of one and trust Jesus to reveal the reality about them. I want to encourage you, stay the course of faithful ministry for an audience one. And that's despite whether you see the fruitfulness right in front of you. Stay the course. Jesus will use it to expose them. Now, that exposure may not happen for a long time. It may not even be till Judgment Day. Paul was okay with patiently waiting for that. Paul's ministering in this way to protect the gospel. Paul's ministering in this way to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And Paul's ministering in this way to reveal the reality of false teachers. There's so much I can control in my home while my children are in it. But by God's grace, I'm on a mission to send them out of it. And so part of the, I'm just going to expose the secrecy is no matter what they hear outside my home, I want to do ministry in such a way that they look back and they think of their mom and dad in a way and say, but yeah, they, they were honest about their failures. And they loved us faithfully. And showed Jesus to us, not perfectly, but consistently. My hope is that you, as you hear your shepherds, that we do life with you in such a way not that you put your trust in us, but in the word you hear through us and that your Bereans there. But then as you hear other talking heads, I, I'll be clear, barking dogs that want to divert you from the truth that you are committed to a ministry with an audience of one. And so that you understand that when conflict will come, it is what will give clarity. It's so hard to do, and, and I would just ask you on a personal level to pray for me or Darren each week as we preach or teach. That we would do it for an audience of one because that's what each of our souls need. 
And it's my prayer for you that whether in your singleness or in your marriage, in your parenting, in your retirement, your working, your friending, your neighborhood, your church context, that you would filter ministry decisions to this please Jesus. And that's who I will serve. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and his ministry and how it is a beacon to us. Father, we thank you for how he points us to Jesus and how Jesus did ministry. Lord, I ask this morning very specifically that we might go lower, that others can go higher spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.